Hi, I'm Spencer. And I'm Andrew. And we're here at the Slowdown's New York headquarters. You're listening to Time Sensitive, a podcast where we profile curious and courageous people in business, the arts, and beyond who have found a distinct perspective on time. This week in the studio, we have Valerie Steele, the curator, writer, and fashion historian. She's currently the director and chief curator at the Museum of the Fashion Institute of Technology. What did you guys talk about? Well, we started the interview about Paris. Uh, She has an exhibition opening this fall about basically the brand Paris, the idea of Paris as a Mm. brand and the foundation of that, how it came to be. And being a historian, she has a really distinctive take on how time relates to that notion. So Paris kind of keeps appearing throughout our entire conversation all the way to the end where we we mentioned Virgil Abloh. So Mm. Fashion has so many markers for time. It totally does. And she has a distinctive perspective on that being someone who who Susie Menkes at at the times dubbed the Freud of fashion. Mm. (laughs) So she kind of takes this psychoanalytical approach in some ways. Um, And we got into that. We talked about her upbringing. She actually ran away from home when she was uh, in her teens, uh, her Ivy League education at Dartmouth and later Yale where she got her PhD. And it was during her PhD that she actually kind of discovered, hey, fashion can be something that's intellectual something that's academic and taken seriously. It's not just a frivolous thing. Amazing. Oh, I should mention also that before we get into the interview, that this is the final episode of season one on Time Sensitive. Um, Thanks so much to everyone who tuned in and listened to the episodes. If you haven't already, please go to timesensitive.fm and hit subscribe. Uh, We'll be emailing you weekly with new episodes, especially as we get into season two and we have new projects on the way. Yeah, like this newsletter, um, our parent company, The Slowdown, is going to be launching this fall, exploring the five senses. Uh, Consider it basically like a cultural calendar, but uh, for each of your senses. Yeah, I'm really excited for this one. (laughs) We have an amazing lineup for season two that we're prepping and, and getting into right now. I'm looking forward to the episodes with Kim Hastrider, David Duchovny, Tom Siegel, uh, Neri Oxman. We have an extraordinary lineup for season two, so we're excited to be bringing that to you. Definitely. Um, And for those who aren't already doing so, uh, please follow us on Instagram as well at slowdown.tv. There you'll be seeing us update not only, um, you know, our episode content with sort of ancillary materials, but also adding more and more in terms of original content uh, throughout the fall. So. Yeah. And we make this for you. So yeah. we hope you tune in and we really appreciate you listening. Yeah. Thanks to everyone so far. It's been a phenomenal response and uh, excited to share this interview with Valerie with you. So, Valerie, uh, welcome to Time Sensitive. It's great to have you here today. Thank you. Nice to be here. Obviously, you're you're a curator, writer, fashion historian, but I kind of wanted to start in an area that perhaps is more timely or relevant to, to your work and obviously connects to all of those things. But 
maybe isn't necessarily about curating writing or even history. It's just Paris. I want to talk okay, about Paris. Paris, yes. Because you have this exhibition that's opening this fall about Paris. Yes. And of course, Paris has been a, a, a huge part of your work over the years. And, you know, dating all the way back to 1988, you, you did the book Paris Fashion, A Cultural History um, that has had newer editions since, yes. um, including one that came out last year. So... Let's just talk about Paris before we even get into right. the curating and work element. What is uh, your fascination with Paris? When did you become interested in Paris? Well, first time I went to Paris, I was in college and I was actually studying German. And I spent every weekend going over from from Mainz to Paris. And the German family I was living with was kind of perplexed by this and kept saying, aren't you going to go to any German cities? But I just fell in love with Paris. Mm. And then, of course, once I realized that I was going to study fashion history, well, Paris is the place. I mean, Paris has branded itself as fashion city for centuries. Yeah. And was there something about Paris that um, you had sort of I mean, everyone's kind of got a myth of Paris in their mind. <laughs> Even as kids, you hear about this place called Paris. What was yours? What, where, you know, what idea of Paris did you have in your mind? Wow. I guess my Paris must have been the Paris that was the center of the art world. So it was a 19th century image of Paris. So that was where all of the artists were creating modern art, whether, mm. you know, Impressionism or early 20th century art. So, which is interesting in relation to fashion, because, of course, Paris lost its position as capital of the fine arts, but it managed to retain it as capital of fashion and luxury. Mm. So that was an interesting example of how um, leadership and power could switch from one city to another. How, as the French put it, you know, New York stole the idea mm. of modern art. Mm. Well, it's clear just even in, in the, <laughs> the conversation already the depths at which you have come to understand this place. How did you approach it in the first place when you were doing that book back in 1988? I mean, how, how does one even come to conceive of like, okay, I'm going to be able to somehow capture the dy dynamic of this? Well, that was the great thing about moving into fashion history so early. You could do these enormous big topics, which are absolutely absurd. I mean, how could you do a cultural mm. history of Paris fashion? That's an enormous topic, even if you're focusing on the long 19th century, mm. as I was for that first edition. But I guess my epiphany came with that book when I realized that it wasn't just a question of the structure of the fashion industry, you know, and the help that the state gave the industry and the way the couture was structured, but that it was also about the culture of fashion in Paris and how so many people ranging from milliners to actresses to poets to painters all thought fashion was important and that it was a sign of modernity. And mm. so it was something worth talking about. And so that was what really intrigued me because, of course, in America, there's been a very different, a kind of Puritan tradition where fashion was something to be despised and looked down on, that yeah. it was, you know, the favorite child of capitalism, that it was a sign of vanity. As, as Thoreau said, beware of any occasion that requires new clothes, something that's, <laughs> that's not good. So here in Paris, you had, on the other hand, someone saying, this is art, you know, this is really important. This is the ultimate sign of modernity. Mm. And now Paris has such a stronghold, not only on the fashion industry, but just in terms of how people even think 
Exactly. I mean, the very word fashion and the idea of fashion is a changing thing we associate with late 17th century France and the idea of these regularly changing seasonal fashions, which originated with the elite and kind of diffused around the world to Mm. other people. Mm. That really comes from Paris. Mm. So tell me a little bit about this exhibition that's, that's opening this fall. How did you conceive of this exhibition? Does it stem back to this this book you did 30 well, years ago? actually not really. I, <laughs> I had just revised the book for the third time and really completely rewritten Paris fashion, a cultural history, because there had been so much new research done that I wanted to incorporate that. But then a, f- a few years ago, a couple of my younger curators had done a show about global fashion capitals, which led me to be thinking more about, well... If globalization has spawned fashion weeks everywhere from, you know, Lagos to Sao Paulo and from Mumbai to St. Petersburg, where does that leave Paris? And in a way, globalization has just reinforced the the strength, the oligarchy of the big four fashion capitals, Paris, New York, Milan and London. But even within those four, Paris has become more and more powerful. Mm. So while Shanghai had the mayor of Shanghai talked about how they wanted to be the fifth or sixth fashion capital. You know, if you assumed that Tokyo was in there, in fact, it's probably going to shrink down to maybe three. People are exhausted traveling a month. They really just want to see best of the best, which mm. is kind of Paris. So I got the idea really of looking just at the phrase Paris capital of fashion because of a, a French scholar who looked into the idea of the phrase the Belle Epoque and when did that develop and what did people mean by it? How did filmmakers treat that, etc.? Mm. So I thought, hmm, I wonder if you could trace the idea of Paris capital of fashion and see how that developed, how the sort of ideological construction of Paris as quote unquote the capital of fashion developed. And so that led me into a new way of approaching Paris by putting it directly in this global context and see how the French talked about it, how mm. other people in other countries talked about it, that although there was a path between, you know, the splendor of the royal court and the spectacle of the haute couture, that was a path which was partly constructed over the course of centuries mm. as they would look back and go, oh, yes, it began here, whereas they weren't really aware of that until much later. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you use the word construct because I think about if if global fashion were a house, you know, Paris would really be one of its core foundations. Yes. And of course, there's reality to the, this myth of Paris. Um, it really did play a very important, perhaps a unique role in the history of fashion. But most attempts to look back at, at Paris as a center of fashion have just further mythologized it, made up this kind of genealogy of genius as though brilliant designers just popped up like mushrooms after the rain along the Seine. And as though there was literally something in the air of Paris that (laughs) made it the center, or just naturally the savoir-vivre of France emerged there. And in fact, obviously, in fact, it is constructed over time not just as the result of French propaganda, although that was part of it, but also because people around the world were able to benefit from the I- using the idea of mm. Paris as the capital of fashion. Mm. So, for example, Louis XIV's finance minister, Colbert, famously said, or 
apocryphally said, fashion will be for France what the gold mines of Peru are for Spain. In other words, this is where we're going to make our money, fashion and luxury. But also the idea that a lot of Americans say New Yorkers have made a lot of money by using the idea of Paris, copying licensed copies of Chanel's at Orbach's. Here's the original <laughs> Chanel couture suit. Here's the Orbach's copy. And you'd have fashion shows where all of New York's elite would come in and look at the Orbach's copies and be wearing them. So individuals got prestige from wearing Paris fashion. Manufacturers, retailers in New York made a lot of money promoting Paris fashion. Later, American designers made successful careers saying, we're not doing Paris fashion. We're doing American fashion. It's different. So a lot of people use this idea in different ways. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think about a, a designer now like Tom Brown, who's an American designer who's headquartered here in New York, but shows at Paris Fashion Week. Yes. This was one of the things that factored into my doing this show and editing this new book because there was so much discussion and so much anguish in New York that we were somehow losing a lot of our best designers. And I remembered years ago talking to a European fashion journalist after one of Tom Brown's shows in New York. And the person said to me, he's too good to be showing here. He should be showing in Paris. So this idea that the best of the mm. best went to Paris. Mm. I mean... I think it's no mistake that some of the strongest, most respected brands in fashion and luxury, so, you know, Chanel, Hermes, Van Cleef and Arpels, these are companies that were born in and are based in Paris. Absolutely. And those companies built and maintained a prestige. And in fact, in recent years, because of the big fashion and luxury conglomerates like LVMH and Caring mm. being based in Paris, that's reinforced more than anything recently, I think, the strength of Paris. You have the headquarters of the biggest luxury companies there, as well as the independent fashion companies like Chanel and Hermes being based there. That has tremendous power. Mm. I think about heritage and luxury in this context, and also even, you know, in more recent years, art. Um, so, you know, you have someone like the Arnaud's uh, creating the LVMH Foundation, yes. or, you know, there there's such investment going into these sort of cultural institutions, the yes. Cartier Foundation, Galleries Lafayette has their yes, own, you know. Yes, exactly. Um, what's your take on the sort of, I guess, presence of these companies culturally outside of fashion, even even um, helping fund the rehabilitation of Notre Dame? Well, I think that it helps fashion and luxury companies tremendously to be associated with art and culture. When couture had hardly emerged, haute couture, in the second half of the 19th century, before ready-to-wear really took off, and a retail revolution with department stores. So you had to emphasize mm. the difference between haute couture which, uh, and what little dressmakers did and what the mass manufacturers did. And you said, well, what we're doing is art. It's luxury. It's high culture. It's genius, original designers, and it's distinguished, cultivated ladies who are presenting mm. themselves, not just the masses wearing 
mass-produced clothes. And so the more you associate yourself with high art now, which has become fetishized more than ever before as being this special kind of thing with an aura around it, where else will you get people spending millions and millions and millions of dollars in these bidding frenzies at auctions? So you associate fashion and luxury with that. It makes it really powerful, Mm. makes the the Murakami handbags even more desirable or the Jeff Koons backpacks even more desirable when they're associated with the art, which is selling for, you know, $100 million. Right. Earlier in in the season of the podcast on episode three, Andrew spoke with Kate Young, um, who's a fashion stylist for celebrities like Selena Gomez. Yes. And she talked a lot about craft, got very deep into craft. And obviously that plays such a huge part in understanding how these brands have their strength. Yes. At the same time, with technology, with a shift in manufacturing, with all the shifts in manufacturing that have happened over the last 30, 40 years, that idea has also had to, to change and evolve. How do these brands, in your mind, compete? How do, how do the Paris fashion companies um show how their sovereign faire, their know-how is beyond right. uh, what, say, somebody can do in China or... Well, this again, in a way, goes back to the 19th century when Worth transformed couture sewing into grand couture, big couture, haute couture. It was by moving it away from craft towards big business and high art, a kind of creative industry. And so it was no longer small-scale craft with sewing and embroidering and a few little people, but building a kind of empire with teams of of seamstresses, teams of embroiderers. Hmm. And, of course, Paris still has some of those famous, the embroidery companies, the feather companies, uh, the leatherworking companies. They, they play a crucial role in maintaining the image and the reality of quality in high fashion, whether it's literally haute couture or just really high fashion like Hermes. Mm. But you can also get very good hand workmanship done in India if you're willing to work consistently over time with craftspeople to maintain quality. You have tremendous skills there. And you could be working with craftspeople much more in, in Africa and Southeast Asia. There are still living national treasures who know how to do things but it's not usually considered economically worthwhile to do that, to enter mm. into those partnerships. So a few high-end fashion designers have, like Dries van Noten has worked for years with uh, embroiderers in, I think, in Gujarat, in India. But it takes a real effort to do that. Mm. So a lot of times, most luxury companies really are blurring that. And so the craft, well, there are hand workers, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're well-paid, professionalized craft workers in Mm. France. They could be, you know, immigrant Chinese laborers in Italy who are are working away on something in very sordid conditions. So it's very difficult for the consumer to know where the craftsmanship is coming in. Mm. And even the most um, 
expensive and luxurious brands use a mixture of craftsmanship and high technology and often, you know, sweated labor mm. as well. So that's that's difficult mm. to find out. We obviously need a much more transparent industry. Yeah. I mean, how is how is that kind of social upheaval, let's call it, changing the face of these Paris companies or, or Paris fashion? And connected to that, I guess, how is the climate crisis, issues of sustainability, think, you know, fur, alligator skin, yeah. things like that. A lot of these brands are built on those materials. How is all that shifting Paris culture in terms of fashion? Well, different companies are taking different approaches to it. But of course, you're quite right that sustainability, both in terms of destruction of the environment, in terms of, of killing animal species and exploiting workers... This is really a major issue. And it's one thing to say, well, fast fashion is to blame because fast fashion does have a disproportionate mm -hmm. share of the blame in terms of destroying the environment and exploiting workers. But luxury fashion is not so pure in and of itself. Yes, it's better to buy less and buy better and hold on to it for longer or trade it in and have somebody else buy it secondhand. But again, you still don't know different companies are taking different points of view about, say, the use of animal products. On the one hand, the Everglades are overrun with pythons. So, I mean, they're bounty hunters. They're eating everybody's dogs. On the other hand, we know that in Southeast Asia, pythons are being driven out of the last remaining forests by very impoverished peasants who are hunting them down. So you're saying, well, can I buy those snakeskin boots or not? Are they being farmed in Florida? Are they still being hunted down in Indonesia? What? Where do they really come mm. from? Mm. Uh, so that is still an issue. I still don't know, frankly, even yeah. as a fashion scholar, can I wear snakeskin boots or not? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when I think before, you know, books like well, Bill McKibben's recent Falter or uh, David Wallace Wells's uh, The Uninhabitable Earth, before these books have come out, um, and larger concerns have come about about the climate crisis and sort of end of world apocalypse scenarios. Yeah. I think people could get much deeper into fashion uh, and kind of not see it as some sort of quote frivolous thing. How do these brands contend with that? You know, this idea of luxury in in that context. Well, maybe the sad thing is for all that people talk about how they care about the environment scholarly studies have shown that actually very few people are voting with their wallets to look into things which seem to be environmentally better. So that although a lot of people profess an interest and, and presumably have a sincere interest, mm. nevertheless, they're still kind of buying things willy-nilly. Um, so I don't think the companies really have a lot to worry about yet. They're trying to get ahead of the curve, realizing that this is an issue and trying to deal with it in a way that is valid. Mm. But it's so hard for the customer to tell what's greenwashing and what's a sincere right. and effective way to deal with these issues. Is there a company or, or, or a brand in Paris or otherwise that is sort of an exemplar of this in a, in a positive way? You know, I think immediately of, of Nike and what uh, Hannah Jones, who's their chief sustainability officer, has done there. Are, are there companies in that sort of area that you've followed or that um, have done something that has surprised you in terms of a sustainability initiative? 
Well, we know caring has sustainability initiatives. We know that Stella McCartney, who's been very in the forefront of working on that in luxury fashion, is now signed with LVMH and is mm. going to work on sustainability with them. Uh, Patagonia has been kind of a model company in terms of sportswear. It's just hard to know whether you can put a, a positive spin on a capitalist system, which is sort of basically built on excess and obsolescence. Mm. And of course, it's all too easy for people who are in our Puritan culture who are critical of fashion to say fashion is really to blame, but maybe our sneakers are really even more problematical. Uh, Maybe Mm. our electronics, which involve often rare and sometimes dangerous to mine minerals are even more dangerous, but we're really wedded to our cell phones Mm -hmm. and we really love our sneakers. So we're less likely to criticize those than frivolous, expensive fashions that we associate with, you know, skinny, rich people that we don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny though, you you know, you mentioned smartphones and sneakers. Those have been elevated to the level of luxury. Exactly. They have, of course, because we really want them. And companies that wouldn't have touched them before now realize that just as much as an expensive luxury watch, mm. a smartphone can be a is a luxury item. Mm. I mean, I as putting together Paris Capital of Fashion, I have a beautiful 18th century fan, all lavishly decorated with a painting of Versailles. And that's like somebody's, you know, latest model cell phone that they would have whipped out to show just how au courant they were. Yeah. I mean... 10, 15 years ago, I don't think sneakers were really top of mind for Dior or Berluti, but now they are. They totally are. And yes, back in 99, when I did my first shoe book, I did it by category, you know, sandals, an old kind of shoe, boots. And then I had a chapter on sneakers and I knew so little about sneakers. I flew to London to interview the sneaker expert because I was like, talk to me about Manolo Blahniks, but I don't know from sneakers. <laughs> And now there's hypebeast. Yes. So um, I want to go back to your childhood, your youth. I actually don't know and wasn't really able to find out that much. Uh, where Where did you grow up? What What did your parents do? I was born in Boston, mm-hmm. where my dad was a student at Harvard Law School. And my mother was a housewife, even though she'd gone to Radcliffe when she was 16 and Mm. she'd gone to Harvard Business School afterwards and gotten a degree. But this was back in the 50s. And so you went home and you were a housewife. Um, And I grew up for a while in Boston, a very unfashionable city, and then moved to Washington, D.C., which uh, in the white neighborhoods was a very unfashionable city. Black neighborhoods were more stylish. Uh, And... Dropped out of school when I was 15, ran away and lived oh, wow. in San Francisco in this sort of lesbian feminist commune. Because when I went out there, I went to um, an underground newspaper and I showed up and I said, so you were, were saying soldiers should go AWOL, prisoners should escape. Here I am. And they said, oh, my God, you're, you'll get us in trouble. And I'm like, some revolutionaries you are. And they said, well, maybe these lesbians can we help you. And they, of course, were much ballsier. <laughs> so then I got fake ID and so on. Mm. And eventually, a year later, I went home. Mm. And then I applied to colleges. And I never actually graduated from high school. I got a, a high school equivalency. Uh, but that's, you know, any eight-year-old could get that. <laughs> and then, so I applied just to Ivy League schools. And 
I got into Dartmouth, I didn't, I mean, I tested well and I interviewed well, but as they said to me at Harvard, we, we really don't think you're Harvard material. So I went to Dartmouth and then I went to get my PhD at Yale mm. and it was there that I mm. had my epiphany and right. realized that I wanted to do fashion history. Right. I'd gone there to study cultural history. So this, this little, um, adventure to San Francisco, right. was that teenage rebellion or what, where did that come from? Yeah, I guess it was teenage rebellion. I mean, when you're a teenager, you feel like you're immortal and I wasn't getting along with my mother and I was really bored at my prep school. And, you know, the, the principal was always like, well, you're just, you're so insolent and you're so difficult. And so I just left. So that was, that was my little adventure. Fortunately, San Francisco was a totally easy place to mm. be. This was in the sixties, seventies. I'm not that old. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so this is like kind of hate Ashbury era. At the end of the hate Ashbury. Mm. You're right. Mm. Interesting. Uh, and what was your father doing in DC at the time? He was a judge by then. Mm. So it's like kind of let's call it conservative DC and and you had to jump out into well i mean my my poor parents my my parents were really very loving and supportive people but it was very difficult being a teenager later mm. on when i my son was a teenager they were ha ha now you see what it's like and and you're an only child no no i have two younger oh, okay. sisters two younger sisters how did that sort of i guess journey from dartmouth to yale for your phd I understand you mentioned the sort of epiphany moment uh, when, when you're in a class and you, you, you see, uh, I think it was a student presenting something yes, on corsets. That's right. We had to do a thing on two, a report on two scholarly articles. Mm, mm. And my classmate, Judy Coffin, gave one on two articles from the feminist journal Signs debating the meaning of the Victorian corset. And that was just like a oh, light bulb went fashion on. Could fashion could be Fashion was part of history. Right. And then I went to the library and realized that nobody was really treating it that way. It was either done in this kind of antiquarian costume history way, mm -hmm. like let's count the number of buttons on your doublet, or it was done in fashion journalism, but nobody was really looking at it in terms of cultural mm. history. I came across in my research your 1991 Lingua Franca oh, yes. uh, essay, The F Word, which not only was just kind of a hilarious take on hilariously honest take on how unfashionable academics are. Oh, yes. Um, but also this notion that that fashion was really something throughout, you know, academia as we know it, was it was poo-pooed. It was something that was considered not worthy of further investigation. Yes. I mean, well, with a handful of exceptions, like Italian teachers – the professoriate is probably the worst dressed middle class occupational group in America. And I think that's related to the fact that they look down on fashion as being mm. a, a subject which was beneath contempt. It was material. It was not intellectual. Fashion was capitalism's favorite child. It mm. was the enemy of feminism and women. It was a waste of time. It was it was a really not just useless, but yeah. pernicious. Right, thing. right, 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 right. And so I remember I was at a a cocktail party. And this famous Yale professor said, what are you writing your doctoral dissertation on? And I said, fashion. And he said, oh, that's fascinating. German or Italian? And I thought, what is he talking about? There's no German fashion. Does he mean Karl Lagerfeld? <laughs> and then suddenly I realized, and I said, no, no, fashion like Paris, not fascism. 
And he, he, just, <laughs> he just said, oh, and he turned and walked away. I mean, there's nothing to say to me with that. Yeah. Um, I have a, a paragraph here in front of me uh, from from this essay, the F word that I wanted to read, because because I think in the context, just just thinking about the fact that this was nearly 30 years ago that you wrote this, I'd be curious your take on it now and, and what you feel has changed. So So the paragraph is... The F word still has the power to reduce many academics to embarrassed or indignant silence. Some of those to whom I spoke while preparing this article requested anonymity or even refused to address the subject. Those who did talk explained that many of their colleagues found it, quote, shameful to think about fashion. One professor explained the, quote, denial of fashion this way. People say that they don't care about fashion, but that maybe... But that may be because they aren't self-conscious enough to envision a personal style. Style is what most academics don't have. <laughs> well, um... now that you now that you <laughs> have become quite an academic, have been uh, ensconced in this institution uh, at FIT. What's your take on that? Well, there's still a lot of hostility in academia towards fashion, even though say, fashion exhibitions are blockbusters often, um, but you still find a sense that, well, yes, but that's entertainment. That's mm, pandering mm. to the masses because you want to get in crowds of, you know, teenagers to the museum to see them. I think that although, of course, now you have some people who are able to have a career and work on fashion. Carolyn Weber, for example, the author of uh, Queen of Fashion about Marie Antoinette, really brilliant. She's a Barnard. But you don't still, for the most part, have a field of fashion studies. Mm. If you go to Columbia or Yale, this is the only you'll have to search far and wide and go, is there a professor in history or art history or American mm. studies who will be your dissertation advisor? Because nobody's really doing graduate degrees in fashion mm. studies because it's so interdisciplinary. Maybe that's not a problem, but not having a basin in, in academia makes it more difficult, I think, for it to gain a kind of legitimacy. You mm. have to sort of prove yourself in one field and then move into fashion, sort of ideally after you've already gotten tenure. Mm. Do you think the fact that fashion has become more blurred with art has helped in some way uh, in terms of uh, its reputation within academic circles? Possibly. But again, I'd be interested in knowing how many art history departments would really want to have fashion history be a part of their program. I know mm. the students would mm. love it. Um, when I taught at Columbia once, taking over for Richard Martin, a class in the art history department, I had undergrads, grads, Fulbright scholars. But I don't think the other profs in the department would ever want that because, again, it would for the most part, downgrade what they were doing. Mm. And although many of us in the fashion world see fashion as being increasingly viewed as an art form, like the way jazz, say, uh, or photography gradually mm. became mm -hmm. brought into the canon of what's art, along with old master paintings and classical music. I'm not so sure that that many artists painters, sculptors, and art historians, art critics, would be so happy to have fashion brought into the fold as a real art form, as opposed to a decorative art form. Right. So going back to, to your studies, you get your PhD in modern European cultural and intellectual history from Yale uh, in 1983. Uh, after that, you worked for the Smithsonian as a fellow and 
1985, your your final dissertation from Yale, which was fashion and eroticism, became a book. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about the the your thesis. I'm I'm curious. Um, it must have been exciting for you anyway to to be able to turn this sort of thing that at the time was considered maybe not uh, necessarily your normal course of academic study into a published book. It was the book was quite well received. It got a lot of reviews, although the first review was in Vogue, which trashed it. And of course, <laughs> I was heartbroken after years of work. And then about a week later, a journalist called me and she said, I saw that great review in Vogue. And I said, oh, you're kidding. She hated the book. And there was a long pause. And the woman said, it was a full page with a picture. She didn't read Vogue. <laughs> <laughs> like, she looked at Vogue. <laughs> she looked at Vogue. And then I realized, just spell my name right. Um, mm. The book was really fun to work on. Mm. In a way, the best part was the chapter on the corset, a big chapter. But I felt that I couldn't do a whole book on the corset because I thought it had already been done. I was so naive. It took me years later to finally do a book just on the corset. But I looked at the stereotype of the Victorians as being sexually repressed and said, well, no, you know, if you look at their discourse on clothes and look at the clothes themselves, in fact, of course, they were well aware that women had legs and the clothes were intended to be and were perceived as erotically beautiful. Mm. So in a way, it seems completely unsurprising. I mean, this was a, a totally simplistic stereotype of the Victorians that they thought women didn't have legs and it covered up the legs of pianos. But, uh, it was good to do. I enjoyed working on it. It got, as I said, some interesting, good reviews, but I didn't get a job. Be or rather, I only got adjunct jobs because still no no regular history department would hire someone whose specialty was fashion history. So I had a full-time job teaching Western Civ at Juilliard and then adjunct jobs at FIT and at Parsons and Cornell and all kinds of places, you know, NYU, Columbia, depending on the year, teaching fashion history. And at that time, I used to have uh, this little cartoon in my wallet from the New Yorker that showed a bank robber who was carrying away a big a bag of money, and he stops to tell a passerby, I'm only doing this to support my writing. <laughs> and I kind of felt like that about most of my jobs. This was to support my writing so I could keep on doing research mm. and writing, doing books like Paris Fashion and then Women of Fashion and Fetish and so on. Mm. So Paris Fashion was your second book. Yep. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting to kind of see it come full circle now. Yes. You were first hired as the chief curator at FIT in 1997. Yes. How did that come about? And and obviously you'd been adjunct there teaching a while, um, but... Yes. Well, that was interesting because I was an adjunct there and they'd said for a long time, oh, you know, when there's a full-time job, we'll put you in. And then the, they put someone else in and I was sort of stomping off thinking, boy, did I waste 10 years. And I happened to run into the director's secretary. And she's like, hey, Val, how's it going? And I'm like, well, as a matter of fact, I'm going to quit. And I told her, and she ran off and told the director who immediately contacted me and said, oh, don't quit. Don't quit. I'd love to have you work at the museum. Mm. So then I was able to get the job at the museum, which of course turned out to be way more fun and interesting <laughs> to play with this gigantic uh, closet full of Balenciagas and Dior's and Chanel's. That was opened up a whole new exciting venue because I've been teaching about fashion as 
material culture and analyzing objects. But now working for a museum, I had the opportunity to work with a team of other professionals to put together fashion exhibitions. And that was super exciting. It was Mm. like writing books is very lonely work. I mean, you're there in the library. It's really interesting, but it's you're by yourself. But putting on an exhibition is like making a film. You're working with a whole team. And that's so much more fun. I love that it was sort of this radical candor you had, you know, <laughs> that that led you to getting this job. That's me always opening my big mouth. <laughs> uh, of course, you know, several years later in 2003, you're, you're appointed director of the museum at FIT. How how do you balance the roles that you've had as, as sort of chief curator and director? Well, I wanted to re- retain the title of chief curator because I wanted to make sure that I would still be able to curate some shows. I mean, you don't, some directors do, but I wanted to have that be officially part of my title. But the director part itself turned out to be surprisingly interesting because it's not just being a bureaucrat and running an an organization or a division of an even bigger organization. Mm. It's also kind of, you, you lead in terms of artistic and intellectual leadership as well as managerial leadership. And it's been really exciting putting together a better and better team Mm. with really skilled and intelligent young colleagues who have really great ideas. So, you know, some of the young curatorial and education and media and exhibition people, and I mean, these people are conservation people, the registrial people, they have so many skills and so many great ideas that they're pushing the museum to do things that I never would have thought of. Something like Colleen Hill did an exhibition she proposed to me about fairy tale fashion. And I thought, what a brilliant idea. Fairy tales often talk about clothing items from Little Red Riding Hood to glass slippers, but nobody's ever looked at that and explored what they mean in fairy tales. And they tried to put together, how could you do a show showing how fashion designers had been inspired by these ideas? So, for example, back when I did my exhibition on red years ago, I'd bought this little red riding hood from the 18th century. So now Colleen went and bought this amazing fake leather red riding hood by Comme des Garçons. She's putting them together with other fashion people designers who've done red riding hoods Mm. and suddenly you have a whole vignette and she finds great fashion photographers who are doing cool sexy photographs of a fashion model dressed in a red riding hood surrounded by wolves and and it was really glamorous and scary Mm. and exciting that's really creative I never would have thought of that I think one of the things you know in just looking at the, the incredible body of work you've created through this institution that's really interesting is this notion of context, of creating context and and sort of parallels where people might not see them, yeah. connecting the dots in yeah. other words. How do you go about doing that when the catalog, you know, is so vast? I mean, 50,000 garments and accessories are in the collection. Well, you, you, when you're planning an exhibition and when the other curators propose an exhibition or I start thinking about one, you have to have an idea and it has to be based on research. Mm. So research is at the heart of it. But then you need to be able to tell that story using the objects that we have or those that you think we could reasonably borrow or buy. So if I wanted to do a story about 
the 18th century, well, I'd just be screwed because we don't have enough 18th century garments. And they're so fragile that most other museums don't want to lend them. So I can get a few, like that 18th century fan from Versailles, got a wonderful 18th century corset and paniers for the Paris show, but I couldn't get 100 objects. So when I think about show or what my colleagues do, you have to think about what can you do, what interests you, what's original, what hasn't been done mm. before. And very often it's by putting together two different fields. So, for example, you could think of subculture and high fashion. There was a show at the V&A years ago, super influential, subculture and style, which looked at how fashion designers had borrowed from hippies and mods and punks and rappers and sort of copied it. And I thought, well, that may be true for a lot of them, but... The ones who do gothic style fashion, they're not really copying the goth kids. They've got something. And I looked into it further and it turned out that both the goth kids and the designers were really inspired by an enormous corpus of paintings and literature and films like vampire mm. films that they were all drawing on for their ideas. Context. Context. And so that was really cool. And, and talking to designers like Galliano and Rick Owens and seeing what they'd gotten from this sort of gothic mm. idea and what the goth kids had. Yeah. When I had so many kids in black coming to see me at my office that by the time they'd after a while, they'd just go up to the guard in the lobby and before they said anything, he'd go, she's on the third floor. <laughs> and it was really great yeah. because they appreciated that I realized that they were creating something based on having mm. read Byron and Vampire and mm. looking at these movies. I forced my best friend to watch dozens of horror and vampire movies mm. to go to sort of get into this. My husband flatly refused. It was bad <laughs> enough that I was playing, you know, you know, all of the all of this kind of music on the car stereo. So or with with a queer history of fashion, mm. my colleague Fred Dennis said, We should do a show about the influence of gays on fashion. And I thought, that's brilliant. And then I looked at the whole queer studies and, and gay history and realized that so many people had looked at the juxtaposition of say LGBTQ people and Hollywood, for example, but no one had really done that LGBTQ history and fashion. You just took it for granted that, well, duh, of course, all these designers are gay. So that was really exciting to realize that it wasn't just like a hundred years of fashion, like Foucault would have said, a hundred years of gay history or from Oscar Wilde to now. But in fact, it went way back to the 18th century when you already had queer subcultures, both gay and lesbian, cross-dressing and gay men in particular being not just style setters, but also fashion producers, mm. like man milliners, creators and salespeople and members of the fashion industry. Yeah, when I was reading about... Um the the show you'd done on heels yeah um i was fascinated to learn that actually heels were men's shoes yes that's right we think high heels are the ultimate symbol of erotic femininity now that nobody's wearing corsets really anymore except you know occasionally to the met ball or something but in fact of course Louis XIV and and men in 17th century france wore high heels now the women's were narrower and often higher then, but the men were wearing high heels too. My ancestor, Sir Richard Steele said, oh, that's all that women care about now is 
a man wearing red high heels and an embroidered waistcoat. They don't care about <laughs> the tender heart underneath it. They just want all these signs of aristocracy and wealth. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, as director, you've also really led some interesting institutional changes, um, like, like creating in 2005 a fashion and textile history gallery. Yeah, I was tired of people thinking we were just a Kunsthalle, that we borrowed all of our clothes. When for our big shows, of course, we borrow clothes from designers and collectors, but we have more than 50,000. And so by setting up this fashion history gallery and saying this only uses things from our own collection, it was able to reinforce with the public, we have this. And also it was a great tool for saying to designers, we'd love to have you on our show about seduction or politics or eco-fashion, but you have to give it to us because for that particular gallery, mm. it's only things in our collection. Mm. Yeah. I think it's worth noting too, that from a curatorial perspective, you haven't done so much the, the sort of monographic show that your shows have really been about more thematic much more thematic yeah. than biographical. Yeah. And it's not that I'm opposed to biographical shows. I thought the McQueen show was fabulous and the Scaparelli show was fabulous. But on the whole, they tend to be hagiographic. And they tend to be, even if you're friends with the designer, very much under the control of the designer. And I understand that because even if they're not paying for the show, it's their name, it's their brand image. They I'd want to have control. If you said, I want to do a show on Valerie Steele, I'd want to have control over mm. it too. But in order to place them in history, I think the curator has to be also independent to say, well, I think this is what the designer's about. And often that involves comparing them to other designers. So it's not just one designer, mm. it's putting them in context again. Mm. In terms of your work as a curator and thinking about fashion as presented in cultural institutions. So here I'm talking about the V&A, the Met, um, you know, what, what Andrew Bolton is doing and before him what Harold Coda did, even an institution like the MoMA, which, you know, Paola Antonelli did yes. a, fa a fashion exhibition recently. What's your take on um, how fashion is being presented at large in these uh, institutions? Well, fashion's been collected and exhibited by a wide variety of institutions for a very long time. It's not actually as new as we tend to think. A lot of people tend to think, well, it started with Mrs. Freeland. But in fact, art museums like the Met were collecting, Boston Museum of Fine Arts was collecting, design museums were collecting, the V&A had fashion exhibitions as early as 1910, ethnographic museums had it. There was even a Museum of Textiles in Lyon, which was collecting mm. contemporary fashion in the mm. 19th century to say, look, we make the fashionable silks here in Lyon. So they were, they were acquiring contemporary fashion. So it's just that as directors began to discover this really did bring in big and new audiences, mm -hmm. then you had everyone from the Guggenheim to the Imperial War Museum doing fashion, fashion exhibitions. Right. And they're often based on interesting research and are really interesting and take an interesting tack to things. I mean, the Imperial War Museum has done some great fashion exhibitions about camouflage, about, yeah. you know, what was happening in, in London during World War II, comparing it to what was happening in Paris. So you can do great things. Um, I think that only a few museums have a big staff and a collection of their own 
of fashion. And that gives them an advantage to those that don't have a specialized collection and a specialized staff that that focuses on fashion history. Because Paola had to bring in a big brain trust of people. You know, I was one of many, many people, Harold was, that were all advising her on what you could do. And even so, I think that the the absence of having an expertise on fashion per se was a bit problematic because in the end, the show had things that you thought, is it fashion, really? Or is it another kind of dress, which isn't really fashionable dress, you know, that might be more traditional kind of ethnic dress or mm. traditional kind of religious dress that wasn't, wasn't really spelled out the degrees of relationship or difference. Because mm. it's not an absolute difference. I think that you can have a sari, which is a fashionable object, as well as something that goes back for centuries in India. But I think you need to provide more context and not just throw it in there and say, that's fashion also. Mm. I think what I liked about the exhibition was that it, it, did challenge notions of what is fashion. Yes. And I, I never imagined I'd see a, a Patagonia fleece on the walls of the MoMA. But. That was really great. Yes. And often the sportswear things were the most interesting ones uh, or the underwear ones. She did great, mm. interesting things with underwear in the show. And then she would have something that would be iconic, like a little black dress. And then there were different variants of that. I know we, we loaned mm. our Givenchy little black dress. So that was interesting. Mm. Any attempt to push the envelope will bump up against things that are problematic. The subculture show at the V&A was heavily criticized at the time, but it was paradigm breaking. And I think the MoMA one was also really interesting in that way to try and shake up what is what is fashion. Mm. And I'd be interested to see whether Powell is allowed to do another fashion show there. They'd already done some on Japanese textiles, but Japanese things have always kind of floated in under the surface as being art uh, mm. from the beginning, from that early uh, art forum cover article that Ingrid Sishi did, which showed the Ise Miyake Rattan Bustier on the cover of Art Forum in the eight, 1980s saying, oh, Japanese avant-garde fashion is maybe art. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, and and coming from a culture, at least then, that felt much, you know, further away from yes. Western culture. As we finish the interview, I want to talk about psychology. Yes. Um, in 2012, Susie Menkes actually sort of coined or, or dubbed you the, the Freud of fashion, which I thought was... I loved that. That was so great. Pretty I had hilarious. no idea she'd been looking at my stuff all those years. <laughs> I guess in thinking about yourself as the Freud of fashion... <laughs> how do you think about psychology in connection to clothes? Like how, how do you feel, you know, let's use today you walk out on the street. What's your sort of take psychologically on, on this moment in clothing? Well, I think that there's an, an awful lot of pop psychologizing going on, which is not very useful. Um, I know that there are a lot of problems with Freud, you know, the, penis envy and all kinds of other problems. <laughs> Nevertheless, if I were to try and do an exhibition on psychology and fashion, and I've been thinking about this more and more, actually, since I gave a talk at the London College of Fashion about Freud and fashion. But I think I would like to try and do it on psychoanalysis and fashion. I just need to try and figure out how you'd handle it. Because psychology has gone in so many directions now, and an awful lot of what's under the category of psychology is you ask 
you know, several hundred college students what they think about something. And I don't really think that tells you a whole hell of a lot about how we actually think about fashion, but they're easy subjects to get and you can, you know, Mm. pay them or get them to do that as an internship. So I would like to try and explore, for example, things like sexual symbolism in dress. I remember I was once hired to give a talk to a bunch of engineers and designers. And I gave a talk talking about high heels and corsets and sexual symbolism and phallic symbols. And at the end, this engineer came up rather aggressively and he said, well, we call the kind of phone that opens and closes a clamshell. And we call the kind that's stiff a candy bar. From what you say, I gather there's something sexual about that. And I'm like, clamshell? Candy bar? No shit, Sherlock. There sure is something (laughs) sexual about that. (laughs) So it will be interesting to try and look into things like that, Mm. look into kind of what unconscious desires clothes can fulfill for us. You know, why do we talk about retail research? We have a donor who's a psychiatrist who gives us beautiful high fashion clothes with the tag still on. She's obviously heavily involved in retail research. She doesn't even wear the stuff and she passes them on. I'd be interested in knowing more about, you know, what, how do we perceive this relationship between the body and clothes and the, the nakedness of the body and clothing as a second skin? Why is it that in some cultures, women are completely covered from head to toe and in others, men and women just wear a kind of a cash sex, you mm. know, whether a penis sheath or a little, you know, mm. sort of napkin. And how exactly does clothing function as a second skin? You know, what's the what's the eroticism of tactile aspects of clothing? That's something that hardly anybody has thought about. And yet there's only been a handful of books written about psychology and dress. So I'm not sure how I'd handle it as a book or a show, but it's definitely something I'm interested in trying to explore. And I think too about, you know, social movements or social upheaval, whether it's something like Me Too or say we head into the next recession, how is that going to impact the clothes we wear, how we dress, how we present ourselves. Yes. Well, if you look back, you remember that after 9-11, there was a lot of pop psychologizing about how fashion as this superficial thing was no longer going to be regarded as important and people would no longer wear high heels because they'd need sneakers to run away from the next catastrophe. And all this kind of angst went on Mm. for about six months and then people dropped it. Mm. So it's... Often people react to certain things with short-term changes and discussions which then get either abandoned or swept under the rug again. Um, You saw that in Paris after the defeat by the Prussians and the commune, and suddenly everyone was attacking the fashion industry as being all of these harlots wearing, you know, outrageous clothes. But then after the Third Republic started again and things calmed down, the couture houses Mm. reopened, and it was back to the same kind of fashion, really. So interesting you mentioned 9-11 because I actually interviewed once a, a survivor who had, had come out of the second tower and the striking image he told me of escaping the building before it fell, uh, the only thing he remembers still in his mind were high heels. Kicked off. In the stairwell yeah. and, and coffee cups. Yeah. People had thrown their coffee yeah. and, and kicked off their yeah. high heels. Exactly. Well... Shoes 
clothes in general, but shoes in particular, are such a stand-in for the person that wore them. You have that the Holocaust Museum, too, the mountain of shoes. I think that that probably is one of the reasons why we respond so viscerally to mm. shoes, that we talk about, you know, walk a mile in my shoes. It's like, be me, be me. And it's it's more than a question of being practical or anything. It's a question of who am I as a person. And empathy. And empathy. What do you think is that link between empathy and fashion? Well, fashion is is the link between you as the individual and others in your society. I mean, in that way, like your skin, it's that interface between you and the environment around you. In that way, it really is a second skin. And it's the way you present yourself to others. I mean, there's that Mark Twain joke where he goes, you know, that that clothes are really important. Naked people have very little influence on history. And clothes are the way we present ourselves, our clothes to other people. And they will read us, and sometimes they'll read us in ways that we think are wrong or unfair. They'll think we're a criminal if we're young and black and we're wearing a hoodie. They'll think we're asking for it if we're young and female and wearing a miniskirt. So there are Mm. all kinds of ways that people will read our clothes in ways that we don't like. But the point is that we are reading each other constantly through clothes. I always find it fascinating, you know, when you see pictures or you're at an event um, and say two women are wearing the same dress and and the differences, but also how they might respond to each other in that moment of seeing somebody else wearing the exact same thing. Yes, yes. Well, and on the other hand, it's the most comfortable default position for men that you want to be wearing what other people are wearing. And you, to be stand out is to be the, to be scary. Yeah, interesting. Um, to close, I think it makes sense to talk about time. And, yes. and you're, you being a fashion historian, clearly you have a very distinctive perspective on time in relationship to fashion. So I guess I kind of have a two-part question. One is, thinking about the current cycle we're in of fashion, what role is time playing? Like how... You know, there's got to be a a point in this circle that it speeds up too fast, and fashion must sort of flip back or or, or switch back somehow. Um, so that that'll be the first question. Okay. Yeah. Well, what it, what's sort of your take on time in relationship to the current fashion cycle? Time does seem to be out of joint now, increasingly, with relation to the fashion cycle. Already in the late 17th century, and in Paris and Versailles, that nexus, the two-headed fashion capital, you had spring fashions and autumn fashions. You already had that basic cycle, but it speeded up so much now with people expecting new fashion drops every two or three weeks and the designers really having to work round the clock and people buying throughout the year and then throwing clothes out after wearing it at most 10 times. That throws the whole question of fashion being about of the moment in a really kind of confused way. Of what Mm. moment? This week? You know, how can it say anything about this week? And then also, I mean, fashion, I think part of its appeal has always been that it seems to renew us. You know, the idea that when part of retail therapy is you're buying a new pair of shoes or a new dress and you feel like a new person. And that part of that, I think, has to do with it's artificial And human beings and natural things go through time in one direction. You are born, you grow older, and you die. And fashion is like a kind of vampire. It's always 
uh, always young and reappearing. It's kind of reborn all the time. And so fashion, in a way, allows you the illusion of escaping from this time's arrow and going into something else, which is part of its appeal. I think it was Jean Cocteau who said, we must forgive fashion everything because it dies so young. Mm. Or Chanel saying that fashion must die and die quickly so that the business can live. You know, so that it has to, it dies and it's reborn. So the fashion's relationship with time has always been very conflicted and very problematic. But this hyper speeding up and the fact that designers, because they're so rushed, they don't have really time to think about what they want to be doing. They're sort of desperately having their team grab influences off the internet. So they're recycling images from past decades, from other cultures. Mm. The, the amount of appropriation going on, cultural and otherwise, is just legion. And they're being called out on it because immediately people will see yeah. what Prada. they stole. Exactly. <laughs> Diet Prada is there to point out to you that you stole that. Whereas before that might go unnoticed. Mm. So the second question I wanted to ask kind of connects to your own personal experience of time. Um, it's been, you know, almost 40 years since you, you wrote your doctoral thesis. How have you seen fashion evolve in terms of our understanding of the word? Um, so over this period of time, how right. have you seen the word fashion evolve? I think that people have become much more cognizant of the fact that fashion is not a frivolous topic. I think academics may still resist this, but I think people in general realize that fashion is a multi-billion dollar industry, maybe an evil industry, problematic, non-sustainable, but that it's a big industry. I think people are also increasingly aware that it's not just something that you conform to, but something that you use to express yourself. And I think there it was... It was the gay movement, really, more than the women's movement that said, hey, fashion is something that you can express yourself and communicate with, whereas women were still at that point talking about being oppressed by fashion. And I think that people are more accepting of the idea that, yes, it has a cultural and a social roles in a variety of ways, things which are good, bad, ugly, interesting, but especially when it comes to their own clothes, people are more willing to admit that their their clothes and that they themselves have a role in choosing their clothes. There are fewer people who are of the type that would say, I know nothing about fashion. I have nothing to do with fashion. I used to say to those people, really, does your mom choose your clothes? <laughs> because obviously they have something to do with fashion. They're choosing clothes, you know, and they're not wearing the clothes of a hundred years ago either. So fashion does evolve and we choose our place mm. in it. Mm. And at certain points in our lives, like adolescence, clothes are really important for us. But even if you have children, you realize that clothes are really important for children. Clothes are really a big statement of who they are. Even if it's, you know, three-year-old girls saying, no, no, I want to wear the pink dress during a snowstorm because I'm a girl. And the parents are going, what did I do wrong? Now it's little boys saying that. Believe me, my little boy neighbors were dressing up and I go, is that Barbie? And they go, no, Frozen. This is from a girl from Frozen. <laughs> <laughs> I was so clueless. I wasn't even recognized which princess they were. Yeah. Well, I think the internet, you know, has really opened up also um, this sort of ability to understand and educate ourselves on fashion more, yes. whether that's how we consume and buy or just simply access to information. Yes. 
Um, and just the accessing of imagery. There's yeah. so many fashion images. We're inundated with them from around the world. So I do think people are much more visually aware of fashion, much more self-consciously aware that fashion is something significant in the world. It's no longer seen so much as being this trivial feminine thing, especially you know, younger men in particular recognize that. Mm. Well, it makes sense in this context then that 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 Paris remains this powerhouse in Paris where we started this interview is probably stronger than it's ever been in terms of fashion. Well, and of course, they're even now starting to try and claw back a, a dominance or at least equality in men's fashion, which they lost by the end of the 18th century. They lost it to London, which was doing the modern kind of menswear, and later to Italy and to mm. America and New York. I mean, all these sneakers on the runway and you sort of a casual looking cashmere expensive sweatpants and hoodies this all comes out of new york sportswear and it's reappearing at vastly inflated prices on the runways of paris but that's being seen as now the best of the world's best menswear mm. perhaps will also be seen in paris yeah I that will be a big a historic change because they lost that so many centuries ago it was just women's fashion i mean virgil abloh at, at louis vuitton's very telling Virgil Abloh is very telling, and so is Kim Jones at Dior Am. Yeah. Well, Valerie, this is great. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of the Time Sensitive Podcast on our website, timesensitive.fm, or on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. 